Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your written word. And Father, may the words of the text before us in Matthew 4 not stay words just on paper, but Lord, we pray with this desire that your spirit would bring them to life and they'd point us to you, Lord Jesus, the living word. Encourage us, Lord, we humbly pray to think more broadly and more openly about the good news for a lost world. For we ask it, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I wanted to start out with the um, caption in your newsletter um, by asking this question of us, is our vision of the good news too small? Who said that? Joel. Okay. Um, Look, when... uh, As a preacher, when you prepare for a sermon, uh, one of the objectives in the process is finding out what is God saying to me before I can say or any preacher can say something to you out of God's word. And as I was preparing this week, uh, the thing that I felt challenged on is that, yes, my vision of the gospel can sometimes be shrunk down too small. I can't explain exactly explain why that is. Um, Maybe I'm just thinking too much about my own interests. What does the gospel mean for me in my life? What does the gospel mean for Hillcrest Baptist? What does the gospel mean, uh, the good news for the Hillcrest area? And I can easily drop my vision uh, to realizing that there is a big, big, wide world out there And we get a little bit of a taste of it by the fact that in our congregation, the way we have changed ethnically in our mix as the family of God is we have people from other countries around the world who know better than us that even if it doesn't seem like there's much going on in New Zealand with the good news, boy, there are thousands and thousands of people in different countries around the world who are coming to a faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a pity Matthew Telepati isn't here. He, he tells me all the time about what's happening in India. Uh, there are people here from China. Is the gospel spreading in China in large numbers at the moment? It really is, alongside of persecution and in Africa. The passage that we have before us In um, Matthew chapter 4, and if you have the passage there, I'm going to look at it in some detail. But I just want to say this as we leave behind the introduction. On the surface of things, when you read those maybe six verses, they seem very easy. The only complicated thing in Matthew chapter 4 is all of these place names. And so when we see the place names, we may figure to ourselves, well, geography is not my strong point. We don't need to worry about that. It's a rather simple passage. What I want us to see this morning as we dig into these verses is that there's a lot more behind the geography and the history in this passage than what might meet the eye. I want to give you a bit of a, I'm sorry, a bit of a long-winded introduction. I feel it's sort of necessary to just ease us into reading the passage through the eyes of the original audience who received this. 
It was written, of course, by Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples who himself ethnically and culturally is a Jew. And the gospel account most strongly than any of the other gospel accounts is written to Jews. They had a common understanding of what was being spoken about. In particular, though, the Jews that Matthew is writing to are Jews who have made a decision many years ago, and that is that Jesus is not the Messiah. He was not the one that they were looking for. This is important to note, because what Matthew is doing in his gospel, which is unique to the other gospels, and it's not easy to pick up as he is trying to continually prove to non-believing Jews as he tells the story, no, 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 you've got it wrong. Think about this. Jesus is the Messiah. And one of these issues is coming up in our passage. He is the Messiah. It was written, it is believed, about 40 years after the events that are recorded. So, Matthew is an old man with gray hair. And the people who have years ago decided not to follow Jesus are old people with gray hair in walking frames with walking sticks. They have had their objections. They know why they don't believe in Jesus. And they have stood on it for years. How many of us know people, particularly older people, but even younger people who have older family members or uh, such like, who know of people who years ago made a decision, don't give me that Jesus, don't give me that religious stuff, I'm not interested, who have held on to objections for years and years and years. Well, it's encouraging here in Matthew to see that Matthew is dealing with those people. He hasn't given up. I must admit, I've given up on a lot of my friends from objections from years back. Shame on me. But Matthew hasn't given up. We wonder why it is, uh, let me just look at my notes, we wonder why it is that the Jews did not see in Jesus the Messiah. Why didn't they recognize him? The reason is that they had a vision of the good news as Jews, culturally, expectations that weren't fulfilled. Jesus didn't do what they thought he was going to do. For 600 years, the Jews had had no king. So they're looking for a Messiah who's going to be a king. After so many years, he would restore David's throne. Another thing they were expecting was that he would cast out the foreign ruler in the land who was Herod the Great, the king of Judea, who was himself doing renovation work on the Jewish temple and extensions to the temple, and the Jews really didn't like him. Surely, when the Messiah comes, in the power of heaven itself, he'll deal to Herod. These were their expectations. So when Jesus didn't meet them, he can't be the one. We're getting close to the passage. I'm almost there. In the lead up to the passage in chapter 3, you'll know that John the Baptist begins his ministry. He's getting everyone ready for the promised Messiah. Their expectations are getting up. 
And John the Baptist is calling people to repent. Turn around and be baptized in the River Jordan and look. The one who has been promised long ago is coming. Ooh, we can't wait because he's going to deal to Herod. It didn't help John's cause or Jesus for John the Baptist when he saw the experts in the Bible coming along to say to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you about the coming wrath? The axe is at the root of the tree. Okay, that's a bad start. That's not the way to make friends. And then when Jesus comes along, this is the one. This is the Messiah. He's the one to fulfill all our dreams and hopes as we have understood them. He's the one who's going to bring good news. We know that John the Baptist was quite an outspoken chap. And in Luke, we find that many times he put down Herod for things that he had done. And the very last straw was when Herod was denounced for marrying his brother's wife. And John was thrown in prison for it. Which is where we pick up in our passage. If you have the passage before you, I want to encourage you to look at verse 12 as I read it to you with all of that background in mind. And sorry again for the long-winded preamble. Verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. The key word in that passage is withdrew. Do you see it there? If you have the older NIV translation, it will say he returned. Well, that's surely wrong. And the new NIV has changed it. He withdrew. So from the perspective of the Jews who are waiting for an all-powerful Messiah, Jesus looked like, what? A coward. Jesus didn't come and meet their expectations as a very strong Messiah. Because if there was ever a chance right at the beginning of his ministry to confront Herod, the foreign Roman ruler in the land, and fulfill Jewish expectations, it was now. But Jesus went in the other direction. I'll show you this. Down in the bottom there, you'll see Jerusalem. And you'll see where John the Baptist was baptizing in the lower area in the south of the Jordan River. And when he was thrown into prison, he was down there in the south. Jesus had moved up to Nazareth. And when he got the news, he went to, where does it say from Nazareth in the passage, to Galilee. He went in the other direction. It's a little bit like this, and we might not pick it up, but the Jews certainly knew it. Who pays rates in Hamilton for your home? You know, people do. Do you get annoyed with the hikes and rates? Nobody gets annoyed with those? Oh. Okay, I'll have to think of another illustration. No, I'll carry on with that one. Imagine for the ratepayers, and I'm sorry for those who are renting or staying at the hostel, but I hope you can appreciate this. But imagine a charismatic leader, a figure rising up in Hamilton, 
and we'll call him um, Victor Strongman for argument's sake. And imagine a whole lot of the annoyed ratepayers getting around Victor Strongman saying, Victor Strongman is the one who will lead us to challenge the council and drive down rates. It's close to home. We can appreciate that, some of us. He's the one. And imagine a whole lot of his followers going down to Bridge Street in Hamilton there with placards, closing off the traffic. Well, this is their plan. And they get down there, and as soon as they arrive, the council is there standing behind the police. The followers are thrown into the paddy wagons, and they're taken down and put in the holding cells. Cell phone calls are made, and what transpires is this. As soon as Victor Strongman heard that these followers had been thrown in prison, he hopped in his car, and you know where he went? No, he went to Beda, that area there. And uh, who knows what he was doing there. All that really mattered was when it came to the crunch, Victor Strongman failed his followers. He failed to meet expectation. And people hang on to that for a long time. So when people get old, and well, sorry, when they end up in Hilda Ross and someone goes there <laughs> and they say, do you remember Victor Strongman? They say, don't talk to me about Victor Strongman. Victor Strongman was a cop-out. And every time, well, not every time, but a lot of times when Matthew says in the account, this was in order to fulfill something that was written long ago, he is trying to overturn objections and roadblocks to Jews who had failed to see in Jesus that he was the Messiah, and he was, in fact, in different times and in different places doing exactly what had been predicted that he would do. People love predictions. They thrive on them. In the next verse, if you look at the, there in your passage, here Matthew gives a whole lot of information that seems quite unnecessary considering the Jewish uh, audience. They know where Galilee is. They don't need all the extra information. But Matthew goes on to say this. Leaving Nazareth, and you can see it up there on the PowerPoint, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, a little place in the other direction from John's imprisonment, which was by the lake, you can see Galilee there, in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. What's going on here, I believe, is this. <clears throat> if I said to you, and we all live in Hamilton, if I said to you, I'll see you in Victoria Street tomorrow, like what's going on in verse 12, you say, yeah, okay, I know exactly where you mean. And then in the next breath or verse, I said to you, <clears throat> you know, Victoria Street in the CBD, in the center of Hamilton, in the larger Waikato region. Mm? It's kind of like Matthew is doing that. He's building his audience up. Get what I'm saying? And his Jewish audience probably at this point, if they had not gone on to verse 14, would be going, what are you going on about? And then he says in verse 14, where are we? Verse 14, this was written a long time ago. This was a prediction. 
And because the Jews respected the authority of the Bibles as they knew it, they had to stop. Well, hopefully they would stop and go, oh, I thought he was a coward when that happened. But actually, prophetically, somewhere along the line, he had to go there, didn't he? Yes, the prophet wrote that. The prophet wrote this in verse 14, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the river Jordan goes up to Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's interesting. Gentiles, I thought they were all Jews. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. What is it with this Zebulun and Naphtali? The reason why I put the quote in there from Isaiah chapter 9 is because in the original in Isaiah, he gives us extra information that Matthew doesn't feel like he needs to tell us in the passage. So we can miss something. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1, it says, In the past, so this is Isaiah writing 600 years before this, In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. He brought them to their knees. And it begs the question, historically, what on earth happened to Zebulun and Naphtali? What is the deal with this region where Jesus went? What is going on? About a hundred years before Isaiah, hopefully you can keep up with me. I'm sorry if it's a bit heavy. About a hundred years before Isaiah wrote those words, because Israel in the north had failed to repent and turn around and turn back to God, God stood back in a sense and allowed the ruthless Assyrian army, a ruthless empire from the north, to travel down through a road that enters into Israel from the north through the land of Naphtali. In the Assyrians' first campaign, down where it stopped in Zebulun, and they humbled everyone there. And I'll tell you how they did it, because this is relevant to understanding what God may be saying to us in the passage. He took the vast majority of Jews, the Assyrian army, and marched them out the way the army came in, alive, probably killed a few to get them to submit. And he took them and he said, right, you, you go and live in Persia. And you, you go live in Babylon. And you, you go live in Greece. And you, you go live in Syria. He scattered them in all the nations where Assyria ruled. He emptied out all their houses and all their homes in those two regions. It happened in a second wave in the north, but there was the worst of it in the first campaign. And the army took foreigners from Persia, from Babylon, from Greece. He took them back into the land, foreigners, and said, right, fill the empty houses. You can have this house for free. You can farm this land. It's your place now. And when he did that, those people brought with them their cultures, 
They brought with them their religions. They brought with them all kinds of different views and ideas that conflicted with the Bible-believing Jews. They tried to teach them a little later on the ways of God, the God of Israel. So they had a little bit of that in the mix as well. They had a little bit of expectation of the Messiah. Bit of everything. In the New Testament, those people are called the Samaritans. They are the people that were despised by the Jews. They were the outcasts. They were the people who were deprived in the dark. Our passage says that. The people in darkness. Some years ago, we went to Australia, and we went to a market there. And I can remember there were all of these stalls uh, that were represented like New Age spiritualities. There was tarot cards. There was, um, can you remember that, Suzanne? Yeah, there was, you could buy Native American dream catchers and hang them from your bedroom curtains. There were probably Buddhas, Hare Krishna, probably glowing Jesuses with AA batteries that glowed and flashed. There was a bit of everything there. You could, you could have the works. It's, it's difficult not to walk through a place like that as a Christian, as I, you may find as well, and think, gosh, this is so mixed up. I cannot believe how in the dark some of these people were. This is exactly where Jesus went. And this is exactly where he spent just about all of his ministry in that dark, deprived area. From a Jewish perspective in the South, they'd go, why would the Messiah go there? That's the worst of places. He should go to Jerusalem with, with all the Bible-believing Jews and get on side with them. What's happening in the passage, if we can see it, is this. It's more than just a prophetic lesson in geography. The Messiah had to go there. It's a reflection of God's heart. For the world. He loves people who for many of us. Well maybe not. I shouldn't say that. But maybe some of us find it difficult. To see and look at other cultures. Or other groups of people. And see the need. And not feel that in some way there's a barrier. There was for the Jews. It is here. In this place. The most deprived of all places where the ministry of the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ began in the darkest places with Jesus preaching. And we read this in verse 17 in the final verse. From that time on, when Jesus went into this place, he began to preach, repent. To repent is to turn around. He didn't say, I love you, you haven't done anything wrong, come and have a cuddle. He said, you've got to turn around. He didn't hide the fact that God is holy and that people need to make a change to face Jesus to follow him. He announced to them that the kingdom of heaven is right in their midst, right within their grasp. In Isaiah chapter 9, it says that in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations, of all of these mixed ethnic groups in, up there. 
We wonder then in thinking about the passage, where is the Naphtali and the Zebulun of today? If Jesus were to come to Hamilton um, for a week and people were talking about it, where would Jesus be preaching on Sunday morning? Surely, like John, he would have to be a Baptist. So he would presumably be speaking at Central Baptist, would he not? I mean, surely he wouldn't go to St. Peter's, the Anglican cathedral in town, as spectacular as it is, and certainly not the Catholic cathedral at the top of Bridge Street, because he must be a Protestant. But what disappointment and what judgment people might have in evaluating him for not attending church on Sunday and being found with the poor down Victoria Street. That's where God's heart is at. And sometimes our vision can be so small that we can't see what's going on in the world. As I said, thousands are being saved right now in India. Thousands. And a very strong Hindu government is trying to incite um, violence against the growth of Christianity in India. It's a real struggle. In China, I do know this, that in the rural poor areas where people have been held down, the gospel is spreading. The Bible Society's um, Bible press over there can't keep up with Bibles and the distribution of them. Remember John and Desire, I can't remember their name from Nigeria, Kalu, yeah, would talk about the persecution from Muslims on the growth of Christianity there. Christianity is growing if we can lift our eyes up and see it. Maybe not here at the moment, but it's happening. God is at work. He never stops working. I want to close with just one more story to bring some of these ideas together and maybe tie them together a bit. The story, it's a true story, uh, account um, in England in the 1700s. And at that time in England, the vast majority of people there were very poor. They lived in the countryside before the Industrial Revolution. They worked for very little pay, laboring on farms, collecting eggs, harvesting, and they felt very much that both the government and the Church of England together served the people at the top of the social ladder, but they by and large had ignored the poor in the countryside. And because of that, those people living in the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, those people, because they felt powerless and without a voice, were often given to rioting, to forming mobs. They spent the little time they had drinking gin. That was the drink of the day. And God moved the heart of one man within the Church of England to go out into those places, into the dark, to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, that was John Wesley. People know John Wesley? And John Wesley took the Bible out into those destitute, poor, dark places, people living in darkness, and he opened God's word up to them, seeking to penetrate the darkness with the light, to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to deliver people. And do you know what happened when they heard that good news? They picked up stones and threw them at him and told him to get lost. 
He was the face of the church. Don't come around here. I've read John Wesley's journal in modern English. It's phenomenal. Most people, self-respecting people, would give up. I would have. I would have backed out and decided, too hard for me. Won't go there. But by God's grace, John Wesley persevered, and somehow the powers of darkness were pushed back, and the light shone through into the darkness. And thousands and thousands of people were converted in England. Historical commentators have credited John Wesley with changing the face of 18th century England. Very generous. It's God who receives the glory, but I can understand why people would say that. John Wesley worked tirelessly by God's grace and by his spirit. The people who were most resistant to John Wesley and what was going on with those thousands of people who were being converted were, you guessed it, the Anglican Church, the Church of England. They said to John Wesley, you are undermining the ministry of the pulpit in our churches. You are devaluing God's word by taking it out to the poor and the people in the streets. You can't do that. You say that people are being converted, that they are turning in faith to Jesus Christ, but where are they? They're not in our churches. This can't be real. It can't be right. And it's a little bit similar if we can see it to the way in which those Jews who had rejected Jesus as their Messiah could not see the good news when it was right under their nose and happening in the world around them. 